0: This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health will come to uh, order. Uh, Today we're going to look at uh, Section 1502 of Dodd-Frank, the so-called Conflict Minerals uh, Provision, which was signed into law in 2010. For too long, armed militias in eastern DRC have uh, perpetrated unspeakable crimes against civilians in the absence of the rule of law. In an effort to deny these militias the revenues they collect from mines in the area under their control, Congress included Section 1502 in Dodd-Frank. This provision required firms that file with the Securities and Exchange Commission to perform due diligence on their mineral supply chain. The thought behind Section 1502 is that the public disclosure of the source of minerals used in products would create an awareness of how these minerals can be exploited, and would facilitate human rights abuses, or how they're used and facilitate human rights abuses in the DRC. This awareness would motivate shareholders and investors to ensure the minerals used in their products would be conflict free. Section 1502 uses the SEC to achieve the foreign policy goal of preventing human rights abuses in the DRC, an approach that we will take a look at today. No hearings uh, were held in the House or the Senate on Section 1502 prior to its conclusion in the conference report of Dodd-Frank. I think we can all agree that putting an end to the continued horrific abuses of human life in the DRC is worthy a worthy goal of pursuit. Uh, After seven years, however, it's past time for the uh, Foreign Relations Committee to examine how the conflict minerals rule has affected events on the ground in the DRC and whether or not it is achieving its goal. There have been uh, some positive results. Experts experts believe armed groups have become scarcer at the mine sites as compared to before the law was written. The law has also created awareness on the part of consumers and investors around the world, uh, seeking to avoid indirectly supporting human rights crimes. There have also been some drawbacks. Section 1502's mandate on the private sector has been costly, and the Eastern DRC continues to see incidents of violence and human rights abuses. So this hearing is timely today. In late January, the acting chairman of the SEC indicated that his staff would reconsider whether the guidance on the implementing rule is quote, still appropriate, and whether any additional relief for SEC listed companies is appropriate. Before action is taken on the SEC regulation that seeks primarily to solve a foreign policy problem, it's important for this committee to examine precisely what the regulation's impact has been on the region. Equally important is to understand how this law intersects with other factors at play in the rest of the DRC, which continues to be plagued by conflict and violence. In fact, we learned last week of the death of American Michael Sharp, a United Nations employee who coordinated the group of experts in the Congo. Mr. Sharp was kidnapped along with his colleagues in Central DRC last March, and their bodies were discovered last week. Mr. Sharp's death serves as a stark reminder that keeping armed uh, militias from having access to lucrative mines is just but one small slice of the larger problem DRC faces. I look forward uh, to hearing what our witnesses have to say about the conflict minerals law and its impact in the Eastern DRC. And I appreciated the the meetings we had in my office yesterday and appreciated uh, looking at your testimony. Uh, With that, we'll turn to the ranking member, Mr. Booker.
1: Uh, Chairman Flake, I just want to thank you. This is the first uh, subcommittee of this hearing in this Congress. It's my first opportunity to be your ranking member. Um, as a woman, I considers you a friend, and to my respect, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. I think that this committee could have a very consequential effect for the, for the better um, on the continent of Africa. So I'm grateful and really feel privileged to be here today. Uh, senator Durbin, uh, my much uh, senior senator in terms of experience, uh, wanted to be here today. He's been a leader on this issue. Um, and he has some testimony he'd like to present, and I'd like to be able to introduce that for the record if possible. Um, I want to thank the witnesses. I really got a lot out of reading your testimony. and I know uh, some time was spent with my staff as well. It's extraordinary how much commitment you all have given to this issue, how much time, energy, and focus on an issue that frankly needs more time, energy, and focus. So thank you uh, for your leadership. Um, I understand that uh, I am in the company of not only experts, but Uh, frankly, uh, people who have insights that could be really valuable, because we have seen many of the positive aspects of increased international attention to conflict minerals um, over the past several years, and we've seen a lot of very valuable public-private partnership work. I think uh, Mr. Goss, you mentioned a lot of that in your testimony, which I think was really important. So we know today that according to the Enough Project, 166 out of 193 Assessed mines in eastern Con- uh, Congo are now conflict-free. That's something that we should be proud of. And in 2016, showed a record-high legal mineral exports from the DRC. These are important benchmarks to recognize. Uh, the North Kivu province, uh, the most 3T mineral-rich province in Congo, reported record-high conflict-free numbers as well uh, in, in, in minerals but only through a robust, consistent, multifaceted approach. Uh, I think in more than one of the testimonies, you talked about a tool in a toolbox. Uh, can we help you, help having many tools in the toolbox? Can we help having lasting impact on the region? Uh, we know that efforts to, co- to curtail illicit mining and mineral traffic must be paired with a package of aid, a package of reform efforts, uh, focused not only in the mining industry, but also at the government level. We know that we need high-level uh, diplomatic engagement, especially on the part of the United States. The U.S. must lead. Um, and so I know at a hearing before this committee back in 2009, witnesses emphasized that the root causes of the shockingly high levels of violence in the DRC and the Great Lakes region was a deep-rooted conflict, found, funded in part through this mineral um, e- extraction. The UN group of experts documented that same year that FDLR exploitation of mineral mining in the Kivas continues to deliver millions of dollars to direct financing to FDLR coffers. And in 2010, a bipartisan group of members in this chamber came together to discuss and debate and ultimately pass a provision that would require reporting on the source of conflict minerals. And again, this is a ban. It is, this is not a ban, forgive me, uh, it, is, it is reporting, it's about transparency. At the same time, uh, Senator Durbin, uh, in his remarks about transparency, this is what he said, you, you could say you were doing nothing, but we are doing nothing, but at least then consumers would have some options on ensuring the electronics in their pockets weren't contributing to violence. We've made progress, but today we are facing a flashpoint in the DRC, as it confronts its largest political and security challenge in years. It's something that should concern all of us. We have seen armed groups proliferate in Central and Southeastern DRC, areas previously viewed as relatively stable, all while the threats to civilians uh, in the East have not abated. Recent history suggests that conflict in the DRC can and often does spill over its borders, drawing in other actors from the region and providing safe havens uh, for foreign origin militias. Now is the time for more international attention to all the root causes of the conflict in DRC, not less. We need more action, more focus, more attention, more investment. The conflict mineral provisions was not intended in any way as a panacea for the threat to DRC's stability. We can be doing more. And I want to just say that the urgencies are seen as, uh, as, as my, 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 excuse me, my chairman said, the urgencies of when you see people like Michael Sharp dying, and and again, I don't want to single out his death because we know that there are thousands of innocent people who have died in this conflict over the years. We owe them a debt, not only for their work, uh, the kind of leadership that Mr. Sharp showed, but to also pick up the cause and ensure that heroic people like this do not die in vain. We cannot let their work uh, stop. We have to carry on and move forward and ultimately vindicate them by bringing peace to a great country. So I'm, again, Chairman, really excited about being here, grateful for your leadership for many years before I was even in the Senate, uh, and I look forward to working with you uh, uh, as we go forward.
0: Well, thank you. I can tell you I was very excited when I knew you were joining the committee, and in particular the subcommittee on Africa. So I look forward to a long, productive relationship, and also glad to have Mr. Young, who just came to the Senate in January, uh, join the subcommittee as well. Do you want to say a couple of things?
2: Well, thank you, Chairman. I I thank you, the ranking member, for uh, convening this really important uh, hearing. I have had an opportunity to review uh, the opening uh, remarks, and and, um, I'll look forward to asking a question or two of our witnesses. Uh, But thanks so much for being here. I mean, it is really important that we shine a bright light on uh, some of the challenges you're facing in DRC, and um, we're here to try and be part of the solution. So uh, I will be in and out over the course of this hearing, Mr. Chairman, uh, but uh, uh, look forward to engaging with your witnesses uh, a bit later. Well, thank you.
0: Um, Mr. Coons has joined us. Senator Coons, do you have anything to say?
2: Um, Simply that uh, I'm eager to hear uh, from uh, the witnesses about uh, the impact that conflict minerals continue to have in uh, eastern Congo, and the impact is on industry uh, and how we can strike an appropriate balance, both to uh, make sure that supply chains uh, are also value chains and reflect the values of American consumers and American people, uh, but that we also have uh, rules of the road um, that allow for um, transparent and appropriate development opportunities. And just my gratitude, uh, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, for your long interest and leadership on all issues African.
0: Thank you. We'll turn now to our witnesses. Mr. Rick Gross uh, joins us today from the Information or Goss, I'm sorry, from the Information Technology Industry, Industry Council, where he serves as senior vice president for environment and sustainability. Mr. Mvembe Dizolele, a Congolese American, is a foreign policy analyst whose work has been featured in numerous publications like the New York Times and Newsweek. He also lectures at Johns Hopkins University of Advanced International Studies. Mr. Arvind Gonation is the uh, director of Human Rights Watch's Business and Human Rights Division, and his work has covered many countries, including Angola, Equatorial Guinea, uh, Nigeria, and, of course, the DRC. Uh, We ask that you keep your comments to around five minutes, and obviously your full comments will be uh, submitted uh, for the record. And with that, the committee recognizes Mr. Goss.
3: Thank you, uh, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today regarding Central Africa and Section 1502 of the Dodd-Frank Act. As the Chairman said, my name is Rick Goss. I'm the Senior Vice President of Environment and Sustainability at ITI, a global trade association representing the world's most innovative technology companies. ITI has been central to the Conflict Minerals Dialogue for years, and I have led ITI's engagement on this priority since 2007. The tech sector is committed to contributing to peace and stability in Central Africa, and we have proven this commitment by sourcing responsibly from the region. Our engagement has helped provide critical economic benefits to hundreds of thousands of people who depend upon mining activities for their livelihood. As Congress considers replacing or modifying Section 1502, we urge you to ensure that the U.S. continues to drive diplomatic efforts in the region and to advance responsible sourcing initiatives. Should the U.S. fail to do so, Central Africa could experience additional volatility, and we could see the rise of inconsistent regulatory regimes. Turning to the issues that the subcommittee asked us to address, Section 1502 has yielded mixed success in cutting off funding to armed groups and reducing violence in the region. While government, civil society, and the private sector have together realized some clear progress on responsible sourcing, this mixed outcome in the region is due in part to the continued smuggling of gold, ongoing interference by a spectrum of armed groups, and the ready availability of numerous other sources of illegal revenue. While the DRC is increasing the responsible production of tin, tantalum, and tungsten, the three Ts, this progress does not extend to gold. In a December 2016 report, the UN group of experts on the DRC stated that, quote, "...gold exploitation and trade remain poorly regulated, and the mineral is by far the one most used to finance armed elements and criminal networks in the DRC," end quote. In fact, criminal networks within the Congolese army remain some of the chief offenders." These elements along with myriad non-state armed groups directly interfere in mining operations, set up illegal roadblocks, and levy unlawful taxes on local communities, miners, and minerals. They exploit products such as timber, charcoal, and cannabis, and engage in human trafficking, forced labor, (coughs) slaughter of endangered species, and extortion. Ultimately, even as section 1502 has generated a measurable increase in transparency for 3T supply chains, armed actors have turned to gold and other lucrative and illicit methods. The second issue, uh, while Section 1502 has yielded some positive impacts, it has also generated unintended consequences. First, the provision contributed to the de facto embargo documented in the region beginning in 2010, causing significant hardships for countless vulnerable people living in what has been termed the survival economy. Second, Section 1502 has had an inordinate impact on small and medium-sized enterprises here in the United States and elsewhere. And finally, by focusing almost exclusively on the role of the private sector, Section 1502 diverted critical attention away from the indispensable role of governments in addressing the crisis. We have three recommendations to share today. First, the U.S. should expand existing efforts to drive peace, security, and governance in Central Africa, through increased support for political and diplomatic solutions and through development aid to help formalize the regional mining sector. Second, the U.S. should maintain its leadership position to guard against unintended consequences. If our government stops driving responsible sourcing, the region may experience renewed or increased volatility. Moreover, other geographies will likely regulate U.S. companies, potentially disrupting existing private sector programs. The U.S. should further advance the uptake of the OECD due diligence guidance, the international model for responsible sourcing that already forms the backbone of Section 1502 compliance. Our third recommendation is that the U.S. should consider removing ineffective requirements that result in burdensome and duplicative paperwork exercises, generate little benefit in Central Africa, or dissuade companies from investing in the region. Congress should seek to remedy the competitive disadvantages that Section 1502 creates between companies. In conclusion, the geopolitical challenges facing Central Africa are so severe that only concerted actions by regional governments, coupled with ongoing support from the international community, can resolve them. The region continues to be beset by rampant conflict and corruption and destabilized by chronic interference from neighboring countries. The underlying causes of this conflict are political, not economic, and are linked to entrenched ethnic hostilities and disputes over political power. Tech will continue to actively engage and contribute to the solution, but governments must ultimately create the necessary conditions to allow private sector and civil society initiatives to thrive. Thank you again for the invitation to testify today, and I'd be pleased to answer any questions.
4: Thank you. Mr. DiZalili. Chairman Flake, uh, Ranking member, member Booker, and uh, Senator Kuhn, it's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you for the invitation to, uh, to testify before you. Mr. Chairman, uh, the views that I express today are mine and mine alone, and I wish to submit them for the record. The last time I testified before you, four years ago, Congo was grappling with the M23 rebellion. The insurgent had seized parts of North Kivu, laid siege on the provincial city of Goma, and displaced thousands of civilians before withdrawing into neighboring Uganda and Rwanda. Today, um, seven years since the Dodd-Frank Act became law, There is no clear horizon. We have a clear horizon now over which to analyze the impact of uh, Section 1502. So here are the five things that I think uh, worked, Uh, the merits of the law. Uh, Number one is the level of awareness that uh, Dodd-Frank 1502 brought to to bear. Uh, Now we know that um, American consumers demand that their suppliers mine the supply chain. And this is unprecedented and needs to be uh, commended. Number two, the law had immediate psychological effect on the Congolese authorities, business operators, regional political and economic actors, as well as businesses, international firms. Even President Kabila sought to preempt the effect of the law by suspending mining once that law is coming uh, to the pipeline. Number three, the law attempted to clean the mineral supply chain to curtail illicit and illegal mining exploitation and trade and eradicate the scourge of conflict minerals. Number four, and this is uh, very important, the law contributed to Congo's acceleration of the delimitation and registration of mining sites and quarries and the training of mining police, as well as capacity building for mining agents and, and inspectors. And also this spurred dialogue among the various parties concerned in this this line of business. Number five, armed groups found it difficult to export minerals and raise revenues from mines uh, in areas that they control. What did not work? Here are the seven things that I think did not work. From its inception, 1502 cast a negative shadow on otherwise legal and legitimate businesses and immediately led to a de facto boycott of product from, from that region. The boycott then led to closures of comptoirs, which are trading posts. And um, the other problem, number three, is that the trade itself, the mineral trade, was analyzed as a standalone process, divorced from everything else that was happening, would be it local politics, national, and regional. And also, in many ways, it was presented as a silver bullet to a much more complex problem. Uh, The implementation of uh, Section 1502 led to increased unemployment, loss of revenue, for artisanal miners and increased fraud. Number five, increased unemployment has caused a recrudescence of banditry, including kidnappings for ransom. And then number six, the law did not account for source, from, for other sources of revenue that militias have. I mean, they racketeer, they, con- they tax everything that's happening in the, the area that they control. And so didn't really cut the resources. Uh, number seven, which I think is actually equally troubling, is that Rwanda has taken advantage of 1502 to launder and certify Congolese resources and has emerged as the world's largest exporter of coltan when in fact they don't have significant resources of this. This can be linked directly to 1502. So what are the, co- the unintended consequences here? I think captains of high technology industry and policy makers in the U.S. and Europe invested this proportionate amount of energy and capital to solve the mineral trade problem, at the expense of the larger governance crisis, that is the source, actually, of of instability and conflict in Congo. So, you know, whether the Congolese, when we think about where Congo is today, we realize that Congo is much closer to a bigger, it's at the highest volatile level it's been in 20 years. So we have sources of conflict all over the country, having migrated from the east to the south, to the center, and to central Congo. So you have groups like Bundu Dia Congo that are regularly massacred by the forces. You have violence in, Bu- in, uh, in uh, Butembo, in Erengeti, in Beni, where people get killed every night in their sleep, by death squad that neither Monusco or the FRDC have been able to apprehend. And uh, now we're facing a situation where President Kabila doesn't want to go and want to stay. So when the Congolese take up arms, or whether they take to the streets through civil disobedience, the reason remains the same is bad governance. So what should we do then? I think this legislation could have worked better if it was part of a comprehensive, a larger comprehensive process. As Dodd-Frank stands today, like I said, it, launders, it allows to launder, legalize, and certify the looting of Congolese resources, which is a net loss for the Congolese, and that cannot continue. Um, the U.S. should pursue what Ambassador Nikki Haley has studied at the UN Security Council, and ask for greater transparency and accountability uh, from MONUSCO in delivering what they said they will deliver to Congo and also in asking them to present an exit plan over the next five years so they actually can allow Congo to start building its own state and its own military. Uh, so far, they're serving as an extension to the Kabila regime and also as a broken crutch to the Kabila regime. As long as MONUSCO is there indefinitely, Congo will never get on its feet. Uh, The last point I'd like to recommend is that the U.S. continue to exert pressure on the Kabila regime to open up the political space, protect citizens' rights and liberties, respect the Constitution, and engage in a credible political process that will culminate in the election this year or earliest next year to bring a new president. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ganesh.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking
5: Member Booker, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify today on Section 1502. Since 2005, we at Human Rights Watch have documented the pernicious effect that the trade in gold has had on civilians in Eastern Congo. Armed groups, foreign-backed rebels, and at times the Congolese army have killed, raped, pillaged, and forcibly conscripted child soldiers as they tried to control the lucrative gold trade. That was why Human Rights Watch supported 1502 as an important tool to help stop the flow of mineral funds to abusive armed groups. This hearing comes at a critical time for the Congo. Over the past two years, government officials and security forces carried out a brutal campaign of repression against those opposed to President Kabila's efforts to stay in office after his two terms expired last year. New elections are supposed to be held at the end of this year, But the deal is stalled and violence between militia groups and Congolese security forces have escalated, along with alarming increases in human rights abuses. And just last month, as you noted earlier, two members of the UN group of experts, Michael Sharp, an American, and Zaida Catalan, a Swede, were killed while investigating large-scale human rights abuses. It remains unclear who is responsible, but it's important to note that the group of experts has been instrumental in exposing the links between natural resources and the conflict. Without 1502, an already explosive situation in Congo could get worse. Abuse of armed groups, factions of the security forces, and other opaque mafia-like networks allegedly linked to government officials could return to the mines in eastern Congo. This could further destabilize this volatile region, which is clearly not in U.S. interest. That might also lead to efforts to look at alternatives like targeted sanctions, like what happened in Burma several years ago. In mid-March, Bloomberg News reported that the Congolese Minister of Mines wrote the Securities and Exchange Commission warning that eliminating 1502 would lead to a, quote, escalation in the activities of non-state armed groups, unquote. And just last month, my colleagues were in eastern Congo and met with miners and former child soldiers from the NDCR, an abusive and violent group working there. They told us how NDCR is taxing the gold trade at dozens of mining sites, making over 20000 a month and allegedly trading gold for weapons. These problems could actually become more severe if the administration cuts support for UN peacekeeping in Congo and makes further cuts to foreign assistance. That would perversely make it easier for abusive armed groups to make money from conflict minerals while simultaneously reducing funds to entities meant to curtail them. While imperfect, 1502 is having an impact, Since 2012, mining at the Kolumbi Tin Mine in South Kivu, for example, has had a traceability scheme so that production of tin benefits local workers and not abusive armed groups or corrupt officials. Stopping 1502 would also hurt responsible U.S. companies, such as Apple, Intel, and Tiffany, and it would create a race to the bottom. They and others would be placed at a competitive disadvantage against other companies that operate opaquely in a way that could fund armed groups. And these companies, along with Warren Buffett's Richline Group, have publicly expressed support for the law. Instead of abandoning the law, what the U.S. should do is do what it's successfully done over decades, which is be the first country to enact a law ensuring companies act responsibly, and then work diligently to make sure others do the same. That's what the U.S. did in 1977 with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And this is starting to happen with 1502, since just last month, the European Parliament passed its own rules on conflict minerals. On the ground, there are currently more than 200 conflict-free smelters, and key parts of Congolese civil society support it, including recently the president of the DRC Catholic Bishops' Conference as well. But we can't deny the laws had problems. Between 2010 and before final rules were implemented in 2012, the uncertainty, misinformation, and other factors led to a de facto boycott by companies of the sector, and they avoided sourcing from Congo. There is also evidence that mineral-related violence during that time did not subside. However, those problems are not solely due to 1502. For example, the Kabila government did order a six-month halt to mining in the Kivus in 2010. And today, companies are still slow to comply with the law and the trade in gold, as others have mentioned, is harder to control. We support constructive proposals to ensure 1502 is more efficient and effective. But in in fairness, we haven't heard those types of specific proposals from leading industry critics of the law. There are also indications that the costs of 1502 are decreasing. So, for example, ELM Sustainability Partners found the actual costs of implementation for industry are 15 to 26 percent of what the SEC originally estimated. And as others noted, there are record highs in eastern Congo for the exports of conflict free tin and tantalum in 2016. In general, we think at Human Rights Watch the cost of capital should be lower for responsible companies and we would support proposals to advantage 1502-compliant companies in government procurement. And while we are not experts on tax, we think that Congress and others should examine using tax credits or other comparable incentives to help support 1502 implementation. We'd also like to see broader growth of the conflict-free economy in the Congo, perhaps through institutions like the World Bank or other institutions. The situation in Congo is complex, but without 1502, instability in the Congo would grow, responsible companies would suffer, and armed groups would be emboldened. That would be a very, very unfortunate outcome. Thank you, and I, I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, and thank you all for the testimony. I'll start round of questions. Uh, Mr. Goss, you mentioned in your testimony that while Section 1502 has clearly helped um, deprive armed groups in Central, Central Africa from exploiting certain illicit sources of funding, its ultimate record of reducing overall illicit uh, income flowing to these actors is notoriously difficult to determine. Uh, You mentioned a little in your testimony, gold isn't covered here, and uh, that's where a lot of the illicit activity comes. Can you talk a little more about this? Is this akin to squeezing a balloon and seeing that uh, the violence and illicit activity go elsewhere?
3: Uh, Yes, Senator. In fact, that's the same analogy I I typically use. Because there are so many discrete sources of illicit income for militias, non-state armed actors, corrupt government and military officials, uh, by bringing additional controls on 3T, we have generated some positive benefits for communities. But at the same time, these illicit state and non-state actors have gone to gold mines, they've gone to illegal roadblocks, wildlife trafficking, extortion, they control basic goods in and around mine sites. You even have uh, validated mine sites where there are illegal roadblocks or illegal taxation schemes right outside. So what appears to be a validated mine site may actually be contributing to conflict. So yes, it is very much like the analogy you used.
0: Does that argue for a more comprehensive approach, uh, like Mr. DiZolele has talked about? Because you know, this is enforcement by the SEC, uh, they're not going to enforce on wildlife trafficking or roadblocks or kidnappings. Um, we need something more comprehensive.
3: One of the basic uh, tenets of our, our testimony and the tech sector's approach is that our role is to to build our systems, and along with government and civil society, bringing along the, the peace and security that's needed for our systems to achieve. Right now we have a situation, as, as my fellow witnesses have described here, where you have a largely lawless region in Eastern DRC. You have almost a borderless region between DRC, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, where armed groups pass back and forth here. It's one of the uh, most corrupt areas in the world, and it's very difficult, despite our best efforts, to create clean and legitimate sourcing in that region. And what we are really calling for here is renewed activity from the US, from the European Union, and the international community to work with regional governments to increase peace and security for the people of the Congo, and so our programs can can thrive in that
0: situation. Thank you, Mr. Diz- DiZalele. Um, Mr. Kabila is in charge now, will be in charge for a while, and maybe uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, not knowing what's going to happen politically. Is that government capable of uh, partnering with the United States on a more comprehensive approach to... Uh, stop illicit activity beyond just the conflict minerals?
4: Uh, Senator, the government in Kinshasa is one that exhibits schizophrenia in the sense that I think on one level, when cooperation suits them, they will take on the cooperation, and when it does not, they will fight it. Uh, I will say no. The government, actua- the current government is not capable of, so- of acting as a real partner. And I think this is, this is the problem that we face with laws like Dodd-Frank, 1502, because it doesn't account as much for the weakness of the state. It puts a lot of faith into the consumer, into businesses, but pretty much absent in that, in that proposition is the role of the state. And this is the frustration from the Congolese perspective. It's like we can bring all the cleanliness we want in the process Uh, One, it won't be as clean as we think. we have a lot of papers and certificates that are signed. That's a different thing than to actually have it as as a clean process. So as long as the state is not strong, transparent, accountable to the people, they cannot be a reliable partner to the international community, sir.
0: Thank you. Mr. Ganeshan, you obviously wouldn't uh, try to assert that... uh, uh, that there's no illicit activity elsewhere, but uh, I assume you would argue that uh, at least in this space, with these, with the three T's, with the conflict minerals, that 1502 has had a positive impact
5: yeah I, I think the the most important thing to remember about rebel groups or mafias or others is by definition they 're illicit, so they will engage in illicit economic activity what what fifteen o two does is it tries to it, it tries to install some kind of transparency and auditing regime to make sure that those commodities that hit the international marketplace are disclosed, and by doing so raise the transaction costs for illicit actors and hopefully get clean actors working on it. So yes, it's having an impact, particularly on the three Ts. On gold, the problem is slightly different because of the value of gold and how it's smuggled. So in 2005, we did a report looking at how gold was coming from the Congo through Uganda and making its way into Swiss refiners. And when we notified and worked with Swiss refiners to kind of change that trade, what we saw is gold started making its way to the United Arab Emirates through Dubai and elsewhere in the world. So, our feeling with gold is one, it is always valuable and it's always going to be a target for rebel groups or others to smuggle. But more importantly, to really get a control on the gold trade the way people have done with electronics, you will have to work with countries like the UAE, companies there, companies in India and elsewhere who are major consumers of it to make sure that they're cleaning up their supply chains too. Now, Human Rights Watch is starting to do that with gold and and some other commodities, and we're talking to Indian companies and others. But it it has to do in part with the nature of the gold trade. However, that doesn't minimize the value of 1502 and, and analogous schemes that Europe and others are putting there because it's clearly having an effect. Thank you. Senator Booker. Uh,
1: thank you, Chairman Flake. So uh, I love that, that there's one chorus, if I can hear correctly, that all of you are saying that uh, 1502 is just one part to what should be a much larger agenda um, that we have. Now, um, I just remind folks that um, that we, as a part of this effort, 1502, a lot more has been done. In fact, in foreign assistance, you've seen uh, US bilateral uh, aid allocations Uh, totaling an estimate of $295 million in fiscal year 2016, in addition to $62.5 million in emergency food aid, $100 million in other additional emergency humanitarian aid, and $440 million in U.S. assessed contributions to MNUSCU. So I I, I guess what I'm concerned about is that folks are isolating this one element of what should be a larger plan, and, and weakening, and Mr. Goss, maybe I'll, I'll start with you because, you know, on page four of your testimony, as Mr. Flake read, you say while Section fifteen hundred two has clearly helped deprive armed groups in Central Africa from exploiting certain illicit sources of funding, its ultimate record of reducing overall illicit income flowing to these actions is notoriously difficult to determine. I love the tech industry because it's such a data driven industry, and having explicit measures is is something that clearly is important for business. And I know this is very hard to measure what was causation what was correlation, but you you admit on on page 7 that overall Section 1502 has generated real progress uh, in bringing increased transparency to the 3T mines and supply chains in the region and in raising global awareness across the public and private sectors. That's just one element of you pointing out sort of the good elements of this. And so you're not in any way suggesting throwing out this one specific tool in the larger toolbox, in some ways, it sounds like from your testimony, you're calling for us to 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 lean in even further with some of the other actions. In other words, you don't see this as a bad action; it's having some very positive effect. Many many of which you note here. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Thank you, Senator. Certainly, we do see
3: some some positive effects from from 1502. Uh, in 2013, ITI testified on the House side, and, and we. Uh, included a link to our testimony here, but we made several comments about the benefits of 1502, including increasing public awareness and consumer awareness, uh, certainly driving more concerted effort. Other sectors joined with tech and electronics, and as Professor DiZaleli mentioned, driving more activity on the ground from governments in the region here. So there are certainly positives that 1502 has generated here. There are also, and I think both of my uh, fellow witnesses here have have, uh, made a nod to this, there are some unintended consequences. What we would like to see certainly is a strong continued U.S. presence on this issue. Certainly there is a better way, in our view, to approach transparency in terms of mineral sourcing. There are portions or provisions of 1502 that discourage companies from sourcing in the region that we think could be reconsidered. And, frankly, looking more towards that OECD due diligence guidance, which is now about to be used in the European Union. It's being used by the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region. Even China has, uh, has adapted a version of it here as well. And, again, it's part of the SEC compliance approach. We think that's a much more effective and balanced
1: way of driving transparency. Now, Mr. D- Dizolele, um, am I pronouncing that right, Dizolele? Thank you very much. Yes, sir. I just want to give respect to a fellow bald American. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Mr. DiZolele uh, pointed out very very uh, pointedly and correctly that this, the, the implementation of this in the short term, in a short period of time, had some bad immediate impacts that were ultimately corrected for over time. But I just, as a guy who roots for American companies, obviously, and who is very invested in, in, in technology and innovation, it, it is a clear thing that if we, if we suspended this rule uh, at any point, it would be a disadvantage to the American companies that have already adopted many of the practices that this rule was intended to uh, manifest and, and actually might create a perverse incentive uh, because they're going to now have to compete against people that don't, uh, don't uh, utilize these practices. Is that correct?
3: Uh, yes, I would agree with that. Our, our primary concern is that if, if uh, 1502 were to be suspended or repealed, it would lead to increased volatility in an already very volatile region.
1: And stability uh, uh, and predictability are two are things that, that are good for American companies, yes? I would agree with that, yes. All right. And uh, I think you've... Oh, may I? No, please. Uh,
3: I think, uh, as uh, Mr. Ganesan said... Uh, we have several of our members who have already publicly come out and said that they're going to be continuing their commitments and their due diligence activities regardless because it's part of the tech sector DNA in terms of what we feel we owe to our supply chains, to our customers, and to our shareholders.
1: Right, and I don't, I, th- those people who operate with those values would be at a disadvantage should the rules be changed for those who want to do a race to the bottom. I'm going to stop here because I'm trying to get on the good side of my chairman. This is our first hearing. I don't want to go over. <laughs> Senator
2: Young. Well, I thank the chairman uh, and, and the ranking member for uh, his, his uh, concise comments there. Uh, thank all of you once again for being here. Mr. Uh, DiZolele, in your prepared statement, you touch on the performance of the United Nations peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. As you know, the U.N. Security Council extended last week the mission of MONUSCO, the U.N. organization uh, stabilization mission in DRC. The Security Council reiterated that a strategic priority of that mission is the protection of civilians. Um, Did I understand correctly that in your earlier testimony, you actually indicated that MONUSCO is doing more harm than good? Yes, Senator. Incredibly uh, troubling uh, as the United Nations uh, hears from the U.S. mission to the United Nations about the importance of revisiting each of these peacekeeping missions and ensuring that they're uh, doing good and that they are fulfilling uh, their mission and advancing core U.S. interests. In your prepared statement, Mr. DiZolele, you discussed the massacre of civilians on a daily basis by death squads that the U.N. peacekeepers, quote, have failed to either apprehend or vanquish, unquote. Doesn't that represent a failure of the UN peacekeepers to fulfill their mission in DRC and to uphold Chapter 7 of the UN Charter?
4: Yes, Senator Young. I've been embedded with the UN peacekeepers as a reporter. So I've actually gone on patrol with them over periods of time. I've been with the Moroccans in Ituri. I've been with the Uruguayans trying to intercept weapons. They, you know... The, the question is, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Right? So that's what we typically forget when we analyze all these things, be it Dodd-Frank 1502 or the UN. The UN came to help Congo transition from the chaos uh, of the war to, to a functional state, and that has not happened. So the mandate that might have started as one page is about 20 pages today. So when you read the mandate of MONUSCO. You're thinking you're reading the attribution of the Congolese state. That's not the role. So it's stifling the emergence of the Congolese state.
2: So in peacekeeping, as with life generally,
4: if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Correct, sir. And I think the priority in the case of DRC has to get a functional state so that MONUSCO will exit and the Congolese will take full responsibility for their security. They're very capable people. It's been 20 years, and every six months... We're clamoring for an extension of U.N. mandate, and nobody's asking the tough questions about the Congolese army, about the Congolese state, and why they're failing to protect their own citizens. The Congolese will appreciate U.S. contribution to the U.N. to go to them directly so they can use that money to rebuild their state. Thank you, sir.
2: Continuing, um, Mr. DiZolele, would we in Congress be making a mistake if we conflated the broader peacekeeping mission with the Intervention Brigade, which as you know was established to neutralize armed groups and reduce their threat to civilians. Um, would you separate out the Intervention Brigade and, and assess their performance differently in the Congo than you would the, the broader peacekeeping mission or are they both doing more harm than good, to your
4: mind? I will wish to separate them because if we remember the story or the history Of the intervention brigade, it was supposed to act independently of the UN. They had mandates from their country. They were trying to solve specific problems. They didn't want to be there forever. These are poor countries, except for South Africa, but they were very effective. The moment they got folded into the UN, we've forgotten about their presence. In fact, Uh, we don't even know they exist anymore, until or unless somebody like you mentioned them. Because now they go by the SOPs of the UN, and they are part of the units that around the area I that I described where civilians are being killed every night while the U.N. is standing there, and every night they're dead bodies. Um, so.
2: Well, hopefully it provides a measure of reassurance that the United States ambassador to uh, the United Nations, Nikki Haley, has made improving uh, these peacekeeping missions, going through each of the peacekeeping missions uh, that the U.N. has, has commissioned, uh, and ensuring that they're actually uh, out the, there and, and, and doing more good than harm, uh, to adopt your language. Um, the U.S. assumes the presidency, as you know, of the U.N. Security Council this month. What do you believe should be the key priorities or areas, Mr. Dizolele, of focus when it comes to U.N.
4: peacekeeping more broadly? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think it's to make the mission limited in scope. And, and, uh, and time, because that's really where the devil lies. There used to be a mission in Congo in the 60s. It, it was there only for four years. You know, the grandmother of Monusco, it's called Onuk. They were there for four years, they delivered what they to do, and they left. And the Congolese were able to emerge and do their own bidding. So the moment we leave them open-ended, that's where the problem starts, because then the mission creep, that's when countries become very comfortable, uh, and in the Congo, we have an example of this. You know, over the last 17 years, the UN, the MONUSCO, MONUC and MONUSCO, have had to be bailed out of tough situations. In the early 2000s, the French intervened with Operation Artemis in Ituri. But the mission was very small. The French came in for three months, I think. They cleaned the place and left. They had no interest in staying longer, so they were effective. In 2006, the German came and helped MONUSCO. In, in uh, Recently, we see with the uh, in Force Intervention Brigade, those are signs of failure, not of success. If, any, if, if a, a peacekeeping force has to be bailed out, that, that's troubling, just to, to illustrate my point, sir.
2: Thanks so much for the benefit of, of your experience and perspective.
0: Thank you much. I should note on the peacekeeping issue, I was in Namibia for a year uh, while the UN was there under Resolution 435, the Untagged Forces, that was a good example of one defined in scope, mission, and time. And uh, they're there for a year, um, kept the peace, had the process for elections and drafting the Constitution, and it worked. But uh, too often we've seen uh, failures. Uh, continuing on, Mr. Ganeshan, can you describe the uh, process that the European Union has, has uh, put forward, and how does that differ from uh, Section 1502?
5: Um, it it relies more on on the OECD guidance, and there is about there's about a four year implementation leeway for it. So it won't go into force until 2021. In in our view, that that is probably a little bit too long. Two or three years is probably more reasonable and more along the lines of what the SEC did. It it gives some flexibility to companies, but it is largely analogous to what what 1502 does. It is, it's important because it shows that in the European Parliament and in the European Union, companies will have to start following similar standards. And we know with large multinationals, they will gravitate towards towards one standard and, and support it. What, what I think it also shows is that in looking at 1502, there, there is space outside of opening up the rule or anything else to, to think about how... How, how one can provide, in a way, safe harbor for companies that are complying with other or other good rules uh, and make sure that they're seen as compliant here in the U.S. and taking steps like that, because we know that there'll be more scrutiny on on what's going on with European companies as well as other companies around the world and finding ways to do that. I would just want to add to something Mr. Goss said and just clarify something. The the boycott took place because the law passed in 2010 and the rules went into force in 2012. And in that period in between, nobody knew what the, what the rules would look like and that created uncertainty. And some institutions interpreted that far more aggressively than others and didn't operate in the Congo. And one of our fears in thinking about how to, how, to, how to tweak 1502 is that if you open up the rule or the rulemaking process, you may just be setting up another boycott because there will be so much uncertainty for a year or two. And that's why in thinking about how, how to address 1502 while also addressing the fact that what we really don't want is to inject new instability in the Congo as a whole— um, is to look at ways to, to modify it or tweak it outside of opening up the rule. So if one can provide safe harbor through because of what Europe is doing, um, or if, if one can provide better incentives for companies to implement it better, it would be better to do it outside the rule than, than thinking about modifying or opening up the rule as well.
0: Mr. Goss, do you have any thoughts on that? In terms of modification, what can be done to ensure that we don't create the same kind of uncertainty that we had at the beginning?
3: We, we would certainly be open to a, a safe harbor type approach. Uh, I, I'll agree with my, my colleague here that, especially as ITI represents multinational corporations, having that certainty, having that alignment is paramount for us. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we pointed to the OECD due diligence guidance, because it has emerged as the international norm here. I will note that the, the underlying language of 1502 is very uh, particular, and so the SEC I think is, is somewhat delimited in terms of how they might be able to to open up or change the rule, but we would certainly be open to a safe harbor or other similar types approach similar type approaches that would avoid any uncertainty or volatility, but make it a little more streamlined and a little more consistent with, with emerging global practices.
0: Thank you, Mr. De Um you're, You've talked a lot about uh, having a more comprehensive policy that uh, looks at governance. Um, is part of the problem, as you see it, that the SEC uh, by definition can only enforce the law but without looking at the broader context like uh, legislation that might be passed by this committee or, or Congress as a whole. Is, is that uh, one of the limitations or the problems is that uh, it's just so narrow um, in terms of what the SEC can and can't do?
4: Uh, Yes, Mr. Chairman, I think, um, for one, the ACC I don't think is really equipped for this kind of uh, challenge. Uh, It's a political issue in nature. That's how I see it, primarily. Um, And then, two, it's really an issue of foreign relations. So a commission like yours, USID, uh, the State Department have a lot more to do with this. Um, So far, they're doing a lot of things already the public-private alliance, and many other issues that are taking place or projects that are taking place now. So I think we should focus on those. I, I just don't believe a regulation from the U.S. is going to solve this issue in that way. There are many more campaigns in the world that are successful, and they're not always regulated from Congress. Uh, in this case, as I said, they the troubling issues. So if we establish that Congolese resources are being siphoned off to Rwanda, how does 1502 account for that? Um, there's a clear net loss to the Congolese year in, year out. And this I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So how can we allow a law to continue knowing very well this is a clear effect and then telling the Congolese we're helping you increase your own welfare? Uh, I think just to, to conclude on that point, there is a way to have platforms. I think groups like Human Rights Watch, uh, groups like uh, ITI and others can come together to continue enforcing. I think the greatest value of Dodd-Frank .1502, uh, 1502 has been that heightened awareness that they've, they've, they've brought to bear. I think we cannot underestimate that. I don't think there is a serious company out there that is saying, gee, which, how can we go and mess up Congolese more and get more out? It's costly. It's costly to do business in a place like DRC. I've tried to do business in DRC. Um, so uh,
0: Thank you. Senator Booker.
1: Uh, Mr. Gizulele, I really appreciate your insights and value, you, the, the way you're looking at this. You and I probably both have the same perspective, that there's sometimes, a, a, when it comes to African peoples, a sort of pernicious paternalism in trying to dictate to other countries about how to deal with their own issues and their problems. Would you agree with that? Yes, Senator Booker. And, and, and I, I've seen it in the American context. I still remember Frederick Douglass' very famous meeting with Abraham Lincoln, where Lincoln in a very paternalistic way said, OK, we're going to solve your problems and, and, and send you all out of the country. And Frederick Douglass was like, don't tell me what's best for blacks. We want to stay in this country and be a part of it. So this is, a, this is something that's problematic with the continent as a whole. Um, and, and I'm grateful for you talking about, even in terms of how we do aid and funding, to think about empowering local communities and listening to the government as well. And, and that's where I, I, I really appreciate that sentiment. And that's why in all the things that I read in, in preparation uh, for this hearing on this critical issue, uh, when I looked at the, the sort of what are the Congolese people saying uh, about this rule, Um, it's it's 111 different Congolese civil society organizations based in Congo, uh, wrote to the SEC over the past two months asking that the U.S. Conflict Minerals Law uh, not be uh, repealed, suspended, or even weakened. Um, In multiple separate letters, these organizations all stated that a suspension or repeal would increase violent conflict and that while the law had a, a rough initial implementation stage, which I've already talked about, it is now leading to what they're saying. These are Congolese voices. Uh, um, it, it is now leading to increased rule of law and decreased incentives for armed groups. Uh, I want to read also from the Congolese government itself. They, they wrote advocating uh, um, uh, for, for it. They submitted in, uh, and stated in their letter, and I quote, the DRC government, through the Ministry of Mines, recognizes that Section 1502 of the Dodd-Frank Act provides a major opportunity to break the link between recurring conflicts, the production and trade in minerals in the DRC. So I I, I just, you know, I I definitely want to, I'm an an American United States senator, and I want to do what's in the interest of my country, but I do believe that, when it comes to, I'm new on this committee and new on this subcommittee, but I value the voices of Africans. I value the voices of indigenous people about determining their own destiny. And here is a chorus of folks from government to civil society organizations, multiple letters, all saying, not only don't repeal this rule, but don't suspend it or modify it. Could you just give me some insight in response?
4: Uh, Thank you, Senator. Very important points you're making. I read those letters. I know some of the people who signed those letters. I've been to the mines. I was writing about the mines and filming the mines before they became a fad. I I had armed guard and drove like I'm going to die to go to the mine, film, and come out. This was 13 years ago. I talk, I'll give you a couple examples. Please. If the Congolese government is calling for this, then that's that's actually a call for help. If a Congolese government is saying, don't repeal your law, and they're not doing anything on their own side to solve this problem, that's not a positive sign. I saw the minister, the representative of the government when he was here last week, and I asked him this question. He had no answer. He couldn't even realize that Rwanda had certified Congo this mineral. So I ask two points, uh, then we can continue. I ask a fellow who's one of the foremost experts in this area, just as I was preparing for this, uh, this presentation. I said, look, I've seen what you've sent. You sent me price releases. They don't send analysis. This is why we believe this. It always goes to, if we don't do this, there will be war. Well, there's no uh, evidence of that. It's all like this or that. So I said, look, I don't agree with you. I recommend that this law be folded and discontinued. If, if in fact, the U.S. folded this law and discontinued, what will happen? And he said, Well, nothing. It's, after all, an American law. We are trying to do things here. They've already set things in motion that are now continuing. Some of the stuff that I've mentioned so positively. Mr. So Mr. DeZilla, he didn't think it was the end of the world.
1: No, thank you for that candid response. There's been a lot of, in the larger activities of the Senate this week, there's a lot of accusations of hypocrisy. Um, probably little of them are true but in this case I'm about to be a hypocrite and go over my time for a minute if I can have the minute thank you thank you very much because uh, Mr. Ganesan I'd like to ask you the same thing uh, from your perspective this is incredible insight from somebody's who been on the ground been to the mines talked to various leaders I have these letters and if you allow me to submit them for the record um, without objection I'd like for you to comment on that and then let me just t- pile on a question and then I'm done uh, uh, on top of that one comment on that But I also want you, because the biggest concern I have right now, which I'm grateful, in fact the two men to my right, have been very loud in this concern as well, that the budget we've just seen from uh, President Donald Trump um, at a time when everybody on this panel is asking for more engagement, um, it cut back a lot of critical programs, even beyond what we're talking about today. You're out there working on these issues. I just would love for you to answer the question I asked, but then also comment on the so-called skinny budget in terms of what it does to the State Department and diplomacy and what what that, how that threatens uh, um, that lack of leadership, of um, essential, indispensable American leadership, what that might do to regions like, like, like uh, DRC. Yeah,
5: I, I think, I mean, I would start by saying that I have been working on the flow of revenue from oil and other natural resources around the world since about 1998 or 99, And and the one thing that's always important to remember with 1502 or elsewhere is that a 1502 is not meant to solve every problem. It's meant to solve a specific problem, which is to raise the transaction costs of illicit actors getting control of those funds and making the trade more transparent and accountable for major companies and the like. So it, it, it can only address... That specific narrow problem of the of the overall situation in the Congo. The overall situation in the Congo is it, there are many factors that would not be affected by the law, but the part that is is important. And in that context, it's it's quite illustrative because it's rare to see industry organizations, major companies in the world like Apple and Intel and Tiffany and. Very large parts, including the Catholic bishops of Congo, saying this law is a good idea. Uh, I, I know working on businesses, it's rare that you will hear all of us agree on anything, and we all seem to agree on the same thing in this case. So I think it's important to note that it does help in a certain way, but it is not a panacea for all of the problems in the Congo. And, and my view would be that's, that's a good thing, that, that more companies are trying to implement it, more jurisdictions like the European Union are putting in their own laws, and we assume that in the next five, 10 years, this will be a global norm. And on civil society, they're seeing it's, it's helping. In some way. Now, a good analogy is what I saw with UNITA at the end of the Angolan Civil War, who made a lot of money and fueled their conflict in its last few years off of diamonds. And when that war ended, we interviewed the leadership of UNITA and we asked, what did the whole issue of blood diamonds and, in that case, uh, the Kimberley process, how did it affect you? And they said very clearly to us, it made it extraordinarily expensive to procure weapons. We had to retreat further in the bush and it was harder to do things. So I, I would accept that it, when you're dealing with mafia networks, rebel groups or corrupt officials, they will always find money, ways to steal or, or siphon off money. But to the extent that you can control a part of that trade, make it more transparent and make it more legitimate so that responsible actors are the ones benefiting from it, that's, that's a good thing. As long as you recognize that it won't solve every problem.
1: Thank you, sir. And you should hold on. Maybe you can submit to, for the record um, that second part of my question about your, your perspective, especially when it comes to conflict in Africa, specifically sure. with the ERC what what, this, what your concerns are might be about uh, the budget that was submitted. Oh,
5: no. I'm, I'm, I I would
1: prefer okay. just out of respect okay. to my colleagues and okay. so maybe yeah. you submit that to Great. her writing.
5: Great. It's all right if you want to Oh, if you want, you want to answer. Oh, so. Sure. So, yeah. so I, th- I think uh, in, in this particular context, it's, it's threefold. <clears throat> Number one is how it impacts specific programs for the Congo itself and and right now there seems to be There seems to be a pause in cutting funding to the Congo, as we've seen from from Ambassador Haley and others. But that may not be true in multiple years. The second part is how it impedes the State Department's ability to conduct the diplomacy or undertake initiatives globally to try and address these types of issues, whether it's the issue of conflict minerals or others, and work with companies and other governments to lay out standards. And the third, and it's not with the State Department, is the proposal to cut $600 million from the World Bank. Uh, The World Bank, through the IFC, which lends to the private sector as well as a development assistant, is one of those institutions that is perfectly poised to help build a conflict-free economy in countries like the Congo. And the US is the largest donor to it. But if you cut $600 million out of their budget, it is going to be less likely that that can happen. So I think it's the panoply of if if the goal is to build a stable and accountable country through accountable, transparent governments and industries that benefit people, you need all those institutions funded in a way that they can actually put their resources into these kinds of activities.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chairman, for the indulgence. Thank you. Senator Young.
5: Mr. DiZolele, in your prepared statement,
2: you say of the United Nations Security Council, quite damningly, they are notorious for their schizophrenic Congo policy, which consistently places the interests of the Kabila regime above the aspirations and rights of the Congolese people. Can you elaborate on that assertion, sir?
4: Yes, Senator Young. As I said earlier, there was a specific mandate for the mission when it came and that mandate was to help with the departure of foreign troops. That mandate has mutated over time, including helping organize the elections and many other things. So if I were to take a couple of examples with the organization of the elections, the UN did not play the moderating—the UN wanted to be involved in organizing the election, but when the Congolese people, whether it be the opposition or civil society— calls for changes or denounce certain things, they do not act. So for the people, they don't see them anymore as the force that they were supposed to be. This is part of the problem that I alluded early on to. And then they also undermine the emerging of, the, uh, of the mili- uh, an adequate military for the Congolese. So the area where Monusco is very present, they do everything, including buying, buying gas for, for, the, for the Congolese army. So without MONUSCO, the Congolese army cannot do anything. And then the areas where they are there with the FRDC and they don't act just like the FRDC. So it creates this confusion of what exactly they're doing. And the last point is Michael Sharp was killed a few days several days ago. You know, the group of experts, if you read their reports over time, it's amazing how much knowledge they've collected over time. When they go brief the Security Council. Most of the time, the Security Council does not act on the very reference, very recommendations of the people they send to risk their lives. That's something very important.
2: So you've offered a couple of very powerful examples, and and, and thank you. So uh, one of the things that I hope to get to uh, in consultation with yourself and, and others is the source of such schizophrenic policies at the UN Security Council. What do you believe is the source at Security Council, of this schizophrenic Congo policy?
4: National interests of each country, sir. So the French may vote for one thing in the Security Council, but in the field, in Congo, the engagement with the Congolese government dictates something else. So
2: this is structural. Um, This is... Formidable, if one wants to try and address the structural challenges of the UN Security Council. I don't anticipate uh, the membership or the prerogatives changing anytime soon. So, um, and this is a difficult question, uh, but I ask you if you have any recommendations to at least mitigate uh, some of, of the, these uh, these challenges, which lead to schizophrenic policies.
4: Senator, I think, uh, as I said earlier, at least for the U.S. perspective. Uh, it would be important for the U.S. to just demand greater accountability. This is why I think the approach that Ambassador Nikki Haley has taken is so refreshing, so that the role of the U.S. on the Security Council is not to rub a stamp, because that's really what has been happening, but to push and push further. Well, I'm going to interject uh,
2: and and just tell the chairman I couldn't agree more uh, with our witness. I I, I think uh, using what leverage we have as a country to try and effect some change within the Security Council is is very important. So I commend our ambassador and her efforts on that front. Thank you, Sachs.
0: Well, I want to thank you all on behalf of the committee, uh, my colleagues here, uh, for your expertise and your testimony and your willingness to share it. Uh, This will be invaluable to us as we consider these policies moving ahead, and also to the SEC as it considers its policy and decides uh, what to do going forward. Uh, For the benefit of the members, the hearing record will remain open through Friday, and with the thanks of the committee, this committee stands adjourned.